Hi, this is Lily, and I'm a member of the Beacon Church. Welcome to our podcast. My family and I have been attending Beacon for a few years, and we love how the pastors reason through the scriptures every Sunday. We love the fellowship, the kids' classes, the singing, and oh, the cafe is great. So if you're in the neighborhood, we'd love to meet you. We meet every Sunday at 9 a.m., 10.30, or 12 noon. We're located at 65 East Williston Avenue in East Williston, New York. For more information, visit us at visitbeacon.com. See you soon. Well, good morning, everybody. So great to see you here at Beacon Church. If we haven't met before, my name is Chris, and I'm one of the pastors here, and we're so glad that you've come. We're in the midst of one of the most exciting weeks of our year. I'm sure you saw it when you came in, our giant tent. Last night was VIP night. VIP night is a celebration. Yeah. It was super fun. VIP night is a celebration of everyone at Beacon Church who is a volunteer, everyone who kind of contributes to the mission through personal service uh, to the community at large through the equipping of all of us together. And so it was a great, great time. Uh, we had food and dessert out in the tent, and then we had comedian John Christ here with us live. He was fantastic. He was super, super funny. Um, if you're not familiar with John Christ, you've probably seen him before, and you'll probably even see a little bit of him before this service is over today. There's just so much that I want to say after what he said. I'm trying to control myself and not thinking like, you know, now I want to make peanut jokes and I want to make gluten-free jokes and I want to talk about the smoking hot wives and there's so many other things. If, if you weren't here, I'm sorry, you just missed it, but we had a great, great time. By the way, John also loved you guys. He had a great time here. When he, uh, he had, you know, I was in the back, so we kind of rehearsed some of the things and he had a bunch more things that are sort of like, Prepackaged that he sort of goes to, like if there's a lull or if it's like not going that great. And he didn't use any of it. Like he was just skipping thing after thing after thing. And he was supposed to be done and he just kept going, which we weren't telling him to stop. But he was, he was great. He had a great time. He is, I don't think he's played a place this small in years. And so he was a little shocked, but he had a great time with you guys. And so that was super fun. Well, this morning we're continuing our teaching series we've been doing called Everyone's a Fixer Upper. And you know, when you're doing a fixer-upper project, I think one of the most exciting phases is the beginning, kind of the dreaming stage. I mean, the whole reason that you take on a fixer-upper is you have a house or a building or a project that you see so much more potential in than what's being realized. You know, maybe your house is older, maybe it's a little bit run down, maybe you just moved in, maybe it was grandma's house, whatever it is, and you say, you know, this place has so much potential. And you start to dream about what can be. And as you start to make these dreams and as you start to work on your project, one of the most common things that you'll have is at some point you will have a rendering, an artist's vision of what your house could be. See, check out this picture. This is not a photo. This is actually a rendering created by a digital artist to help inspire the homeowner to say, you know what, this is what your house could look like. And if you've ever done this before, you know that, that the first house itself was probably like this left half, about a story and a half tall, right? And then the, you know, the artist, the architect, and all of them, they said, listen, we're going to add a garage on the right. It's going to have a great room above it. It's going to wrap around. We're going to finish the attic. We're going to blow out the back. You're going to have you know, this huge house, and they kind of inspire you with this rendering. And after you see this picture of what this could be, that's when you decide, all right, I'm going to take out the biggest loan I've ever taken out. 
I'm going to go through the most frustrating, painful process I've ever gone through, all because of this vision of what could be. And maybe you don't have a rendering of your own house, but this happens in so many other parts of life. I think one of the first renderings that many people build for themselves is the idea of college. So as they're coming up through grade school and they go into middle school and into high school, they, have, they start to build an image of what they might do after high school. They think, I, I think I want to go to, you know, I want to go to college. And then they say, I want to go to a college like that one. And they start to visit campuses. They start to evaluate degree programs. And then at some point they say, yes, I want to pursue that vision. And they go after it. Or if you're a bride, you start working on your wedding when you're about three years old, right? <laughs> so little girls, you think, someday I'm going to get married, and the wedding is going to be like this, and the man is going to be like this. And as you get older, you go to weddings, and you think, wow, that was amazing. I'm definitely doing that. And then you go to someone else's wedding, and you say, that was terrible. I'm never doing that. And then you talk to your friends, and you read magazines, and you're building this picture, this rendering of what your wedding could be like. Or maybe you decide to get physically fit, and you see other people that you know, and you think, boy, I, I wish I looked more like that. I wish I was in shape like that. Or I wish I could pursue that sport based on my fitness. And so you, you kind of go after that, always based on a rendering. Or maybe for you, it's retirement. You've been working for years, and you're starting to see the next phase. And you think, wow, I see a picture out there of what could be. And this rendering is a big part of that. I was talking to some friends after the first service, actually, who were in the construction trade in the city. They helped to build big buildings. And they told me, that now there's a new law that when you build a building in the city, you have to post the rendering on the fence so that when people are passing by, they even can see a picture of what is to come, you know, to kind of even encourage the neighborhood. Like, listen, I know we're jackhammering in the middle of the night, but look what's coming, <laughs> right? Something great is going to be here. It's going to be worth it, so stay with us. It's kind of vision casting and dreaming, and there's, there's this rendering. And so as we're studying the book of Nehemiah today, chapter 8, go ahead and grab a Bible and turn there. We're going to see a, an image very similar to this that happens to God's people. And I want to give you the context of where we are in the story of Nehemiah. Up until now, you probably remember Nehemiah was a Jewish man who had been living abroad because they had been conquered. And he had come home and had been rebuilding the walls around the city. The walls are now done. And in fact, if you read chapter 7, the chapter that's right before, the last statement is chapter 7 is that everyone was done building and everyone settled in their own towns. So the walls are built. We also know from other books besides Nehemiah that the temple had been rebuilt. So in a very real way, the fixer-upper of the walls and the temple was done, but now it was time to renovate the culture itself. Now, I want to read a long section of this to you, but stay with me because it, it hangs together on its own. It's such a great narrative. I want to read about 12 verses here. It says, All the people came together as one in the square before the water gate. They told Ezra, the teacher of the law, to bring out the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded for Israel. So on the first day of the seventh month, Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, which was made up of men and women and all who were able to understand. He read it aloud from daybreak till noon as he faced the square before the water gate in the presence of the men, women, and others who could understand. And all the people listened attentively to the book of the law. Ezra the teacher of the law stood on a high wooden platform built for the occasion. Besides him on his right stood Mattathiah, Shema, Ananiah, Uriah, 
Hilkiah, and Mesaiah. And on his left were Padiah, Mishael, Melchizedek, Hashem, Hashbanada, Zechariah, and Meshalam. Yes. <laughs> Ezra opened the book. All the people could see him because he was standing above them, and as he opened it, the people all stood up. Ezra praised the Lord, the great God, and all the people lifted their hands and responded, Amen, Amen. Then they bowed their heads and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. The Levites, I can't do this again, instructed the people in the law while all the people were standing there. They read from the book of the law, making it clear and giving the meaning so that the people understood what was being read. Then Nehemiah the governor, Ezra the priest and teacher of the law, and the Levites who were instructing the people said to them all, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people had been weeping as they listened to the words of the law. Nehemiah said, Go and enjoy choice food and sweet drinks, and send some to those who have nothing prepared. This day is holy to the Lord our God. Do not grieve, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. The Levites calmed all the people, saying, Be still, for this is a holy day. Do not grieve. Then all the people went away to eat and drink, to send portions of food, and to celebrate with great joy, because they now understood the words that had been made known to them. So let's unpack that section for a little while. So first of all, they met at the Watergate. This is not prophecy about Nixon. They came together on the first day of the seventh month. Does anybody know what the first day of the seventh month is called today? Somebody knows. Yes, this is Rosh Hashanah, the first day of the seventh month, which is now celebrated as the new year. First day of the seventh month is the new year. Yes, I know. There are actually a couple of different years going on in Israel right now. There's the, the beginning of the calendar year and then the beginning of the civil year. The calendar year started with Passover. The civil year starts on the first day of the seventh month, now called Rosh Hashanah. I know that sounds strange to have two years happening at the same time, but it's actually not because we do the exact same thing today. Okay? We know that the calendar year turns over January 1, but most of us, our year starts in what month? September and ends in June. That's the year that most of us live. That's very normal, okay? In fact, I was at a seminar this week, and a teacher was saying, we have some great resources. They're going to be coming out for you next year. I'm excited for you to have them. They'll be out next year. And finally, one of the guys was like, it's actually this year that they're coming out, in September. The guy said, that's what I said, next year. <laughs> so there's two different years happening. This is Rosh Hashanah. So then Ezra steps up and reads the law. If you're thinking, Ezra, this is not his book. If you look at the table of contents or if you know your Bible, Ezra is the book before this. How did Ezra get into Nehemiah's book? Is this like a crossover episode that's happening? It's kind of strange. But the history tells us that Ezra and Nehemiah were both back in Israel at the same time. Ezra actually went there first. He was there 13 years before Nehemiah. His project was the rebuilding of the temple. If you read Ezra, it's a very parallel book. We chose to really focus on Nehemiah because it's not simply religious, but it's actually more cultural. But the two of them work together. And in fact, for most of the history of the Bible, they were one book, with Ezra being the first half, Nehemiah being the second half. And in the Jewish scriptures today, they're actually still one book because their stories are intertwined. But this is the first time Ezra makes an appearance in Nehemiah's book. By the way, most scholars believe Ezra is the one who put them both together. Anyway, it's another story. So, the law was then read publicly. 
There's a little bit of a cultural divide here that I want to make sure we don't miss. It's so different from today when you're talking about access to the scriptures. First of all, in a very physical sense, there were not that many copies of the law to begin with. Okay, when we're talking about the law here, I believe and most scholars believe that we're talking about the law of Moses, which would mean only the first five books of the Old Testament. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. They call it the Pentateuch because there's five books. And this is the law of Moses. And this is most likely what they read. Now, the Old Testament, of course, continues to be revealed and then archived and collected. That's how, you know, Nehemiah is actually in the Bible now, whereas they said we read the Bible aloud. Does that make sense? So the Old Testament kind of came in sections. They were probably reading the very first section. There would have been not that many copies available. That's difference, number one. Number two, most of them didn't read at all. So even if there were copies available that you could get your hands on it, you couldn't read it. You didn't know how to read. So it's just so different because today, Nehemiah, every single one of you who wanted to, just read it for yourself. We have extra copies of the scriptures laying all over this room. We have more of them in the back in boxes. In fact, if you want one, I will give you one. And most of you didn't even do that. Most of you used an app on your phone because you always have the Bible with you. A very, very amazing time to live for us, to have that kind of access to the scriptures. But it was so different for them. So the law wasn't as familiar. They weren't used to having it read to them. So this amazing scene unfolds. It says that they stood together from daybreak until noon. So we're talking five or six hours. They stood and listened to the scriptures being read. So the next time you tell me, Chris, I can't stand for four songs in a row. (laughs) We're going back Nehemiah 8 style, five or six hours of standing outside, listening to the scriptures being read. Ezra would read the scriptures, then the Levites would explain it. This was the rendering that they experienced. God's law saying this is the perfect way to live. This is the perfect way that society should be realized. This is how we should treat each other. And you're talking about the Ten Commandments, about adultery and stealing and murder and relating to God and keeping God first and so many other things. And they were overwhelmed. It says they were weeping. They were mourning. They were on their face worshiping with very powerful language. So much so that the leaders had to say, wait, 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 this is New Year's Day. This is a happy day. We're actually not here to cry. This is a great day of rejoicing. Somebody gets some food. Somebody gets some drink. They were so overcome by the rendering and the shortcomings they realized in their own life that this response came up in them. And it wasn't a momentary thing because major cultural shifts started on this day that lasted for the rest of time. We don't have time to unpack all of this, but if you study Old Testament culture, they principally talk about two cultures. You have ancient history, and then you have the period of the judges, but eventually you have First Temple Judaism. Okay, Solomon built the most amazing temple. That was the height of the monarchy when Israel came together, United Nation. Anyway, this is called Second Temple Judaism. Second temple, meaning Ezra built it, okay? It was not nearly as fancy as Solomon's temple. But culturally, it changed Israel. First of all, they started to have a stronger appetite for his word and for his law. And so soon we start to hear about the Targums, where they started to translate it into other languages. 
We also have a new culture of the synagogue culture that develops. You notice synagogues are never mentioned in the Old Testament, but they're mentioned a ton in the life of Jesus, right? This is why. Out of Second Temple Judaism came the synagogues where they said we need local access to the law and local access to connection and fellowship for the covenant community. Uh, you also had so many other things uh, in terms of their expectations for the future and how God's people. Also, um, synagogues allowed people who never came home back to Israel to still worship and on and on. And this was the culture that Jesus came into, established by Second Temple Judaism, inaugurated on this day when they chose to read the scripture aloud. A major, major spiritual renewal for their entire community. And this culture lasted all the way to the time of Jesus. Not the physical temple building. That building actually got knocked down again. And then Herod built a new temple that was the fanciest temple ever built. But it was kind of Herod's money and Herod's deal, so they weren't really sure what to make of it. But it changed the culture forever. So I want to just quickly talk about three things we can pull out of this and see that how we can approach that type of spiritual renewal in our own life. So the first is this. For spiritual renewal, God's people must read his word. All of this happened because they came before him and saw the picture of what God can do. If you watch the Fixer Upper TV show, it starts the same way almost every time. They go house hunting. They pick from three different houses, and then they narrow it down to one, and that house is mysteriously the one that they already own and have permits for, and then they start to rebuild it, okay? So I think that part of the show is probably a little bit, you know, a little bit of poetic license there, and that's fine. It makes it interesting. Then, soon after that, Joanna usually sits down with them with her laptop, right? Have you seen this? She shows them pictures. Look at what your house could be. They go, wow, I really like that. Then they work on this project. Can you imagine what would happen if Joanna had one vision for the property, Chip had another, they both have crews that help them because nobody, no husband and wife can renovate a house in 90 minutes by themselves, I promise, okay? <laughs> so they have people that help them. Imagine if those talented people also had a different vision. The carpenter, what's his name, the carpenter? Somebody knows. Clint, Clint the carpenter, right? What if he has his own vision? It would be a disaster. Even though they were all talented, even though they were all committed, if they're not working the same vision, it would be a total train wreck. You must be familiar with his word personally. Something else that was scattered in here culturally, but I don't want you to miss it, is there was one thing that was repeated. In fact, in the first service, I was worried that I had read the same line twice. But then I went back while I was talking, which didn't turn out so well either. But it said, they came together at the water gate, invited all of the men and women who could understand and everyone who could understand. So they were at the water gate in the presence of the men and women and everyone who could understand. It's repeated twice. Then it says, Ezra stood up in front of everyone on a specially made platform just for this occasion. Now, why is that? Is, it, is he a celebrity? No. There's a statement being made here in the text from the author saying this word was for every single person. They did not read it in the temple that would be mostly Levites and some of the men. They read it outside in front of the gate, which is like downtown. So imagine you saying it's time for a public reading of the scripture. Invite everyone you know we're going to meet at Eisenhower Park. That's what it feels like. 
So they're saying every single person has access to the scripture. So we all know this. This is another sermon on how you're supposed to read the Bible more. I'm sorry. It just is. We already know this. Even as I was preparing, I was thinking, why do we keep talking about this? But then I thought about it more. I thought, well, why don't we do it? Why don't we read the Bible more? And it's something that we struggle with. And it's not really something we can move on from as a focus of conversation until we're confident that we're crushing this. And I know that we're not. I know that I'm not. Why are we not in his word more? And there's a hundred reasons for that. I think, it's, I think some of it is because we don't take sin seriously enough. I think some of it is because we're not inspired enough to realize the gift of God's word that he's given to us. I also think some of it is that we already attend to the tyranny of the urgent rather than attending to what's actually important. But that's for another day. Because we all know that it has to be done. Some of you guys know me. You know that I play the piano. Uh, one kind of guy that I've always looked up to is a man named Paderewski. He was a Polish pianist about 100 years ago. And he was incredible. He was known for his technique, which means he could play, physically play, better and more lyrically and more technically than his peers. And I know that's like everyone's goal when they play the piano, but he, he did that. Okay, he took it to the next level, so much so that he became an international celebrity coming over from Poland. He actually came to the States. He played New York. He played uh, Carnegie Hall, and he played the Garden. Okay, the Garden was around in the 19-teens. 20,000 people came out to hear a classical piano from Paderewski. He was that good. Now, one of the reasons that he's still well-known to this day is Paderewski decided to edit and annotate the Beethoven piano sonatas. Have any of you ever played a Beethoven piano sonata besides Gladys? Anybody else, right? So Paderewski, there's, uh, there's 32 of these sonatas, right? Some of them are easy. You've heard them a thousand times. Oh, they, they play parts of them a thousand times. Others are wicked nasty hard, okay? And what Paderewski did is he, he annotated this edition. He said, this is how you should play it. These are the fingerings I like. This is the phrasing that I like. He footnotes at the bottom. It looks like a study Bible for Beethoven piano sonatas, okay? So then you're a pianist, and you think, all right, well, I'm going to play from the Paderewski edition. It's so hard. You're like, how did he use these fingerings? How did he phrase like this? Because he was just like next level. And it really became, there's no recordings of Beethoven playing his own work, obviously. So the way that Paderewski annotates these sonatas is considered to be the way that they're supposed to be played. All right? So I know that I'm like nerding out a little bit on you, but he's like that level, okay? Here's what Paderewski has to say about practice. He says, if I miss one day's practice, I notice. If I miss two days' practice, the critics notice. If I miss three days' practice, the postman notices. <laughs> okay? So this is one of the top three or four pianists who ever lived on the face of the earth. And he says, you know, if I miss a day, I, I can hear it. If I miss a second day, anyone with a trained ear can hear it. If I miss a third day, everyone notices. So there's this, there's this issue of consistency, and this is exactly what happens in the Christian life. I think if you miss one day of spending time with God and his word, you'll start to feel it. If you miss a second day, your wife is going to know for sure. <laughs> if you miss a third day, everyone on Facebook will know. Okay? We need this consistency of being before him in his word. I don't know why. I don't know why we can't just learn something, mark it off, it's done, and forever be changed. That would be fantastic. It just doesn't work. 
You need that ongoing exposure to him and his word. All right, building on this, for spiritual renewal, God's word must be taught. There was something very amazing that happened in this passage. I want to look at it in another version of the Bible called the NET, and it talks about it in chapter 8, verse 7 and 8. It says, the Levites were teaching the the people the law. As the people remained standing, can't let that go, they read from the book of God's law, explaining it and imparting insight. Thus, the people gained understanding from what was read. As far as I know, this is one of the first times in the Bible that it's actually explaining to us that the Bible needs interpretation. You need to take what's presented to you in the text and then interpret it to understand what God is applying to your life. Now, interpretation does not mean what you think it means to you, which is going to be different than what you think it means to you. Interpretation is properly applying God's word to exactly what it means for your life. And here's an example of what I mean. Uh, Many of you have never seen this before. This is an ancient cultural relic. Anthropologists tell us that they were once very common. This is called a map. Okay? Check this out. This is a map of all of the hiking trails at Bear Mountain. Okay? So, does this map actually tell you how to get from Pine Grove Lake to Breakneck Pond? Sort of. Right? It gives you all the information you need, but you're going to have to interpret the map for yourself. Because first of all, it doesn't tell you where you are, right? It also doesn't tell you what to do if this particular trail is washed out today. It also doesn't tell you, you know, where would be good places to meet friends. A lot of information is here, but it requires interpretation. This is what it means to interpret the Bible, okay? What do we use now instead of this map? We use... GPS. A GPS can get you where you're going. But have you ever used a GPS and you realize, I don't have any idea where I am? Think of it this way. What would it be like if you marched around Bear Mountain hiking trails like this? Eight feet, 27 feet. What did you see? You saw nothing except for your stupid phone. Right? We all are hoping for this, not these texts, for this from the Bible. But that's not what it is. The Bible needs the interpretation of the map in your life. The scripture needs to be taught. Now, the first list of names, the ones that I was willing to read, I want you to listen to these names again. Because we're going to talk about who are the teachers who need to be teaching the scripture, okay? First, we had Shema, Ananiah, Uriah, Hilkanah, Masasiah, Pediah, Mishael, Malchah, Hasham, Hashbanadah, Zechariah, and Mashalam. Only three types of names. The Ahs, the Ahms, and the Els. <laughs> right? The names are included for a reason. Okay, what is the most common Old Testament name for God? Yahweh. How do you shorten it? Ah. All of these names are called theophoric names. They're carrying the name of God on them. What's another name for God? El. You've heard some of the names of God that start with El. El Shaddai. Cities are named after it. Beth El. Okay, and Yom stands for the almighty God of the sea. 
These are all theophoric names, all of them literally carrying the name of God on them, these leaders who stood up and taught the scripture. Now that Jesus has come, now that all believers are priests, who today carries the name of Christ on them? Tell me, who? Christians. Every Christian. Some of them have words that even sound like it, like their name might be Christopher. Right? My man. Okay? You know, we had a great joke about Jesus last night. I can't go there, but it was amazing. It was amazing. Okay? We all carry the name of Christ on us and with us. We all are teachers of the law, of the scripture. You say, I can't teach the Bible. Let's work on that. Because one of the callings of every believer is once you start to just get a little bit down this road of following Christ, you grab a few people with you and you say, I want you to come with me. I want you to see what I'm seeing in him. And you start to bring them with you. And so part of what we do as a church, one of our missions is to equip all of us to be teachers of the word. And so just for a couple of minutes today, I want to give you some super high-level teaching. The best kind of short seminary class that I can give you from the great theologian John Christ on how you should be equipped as a teacher of the law, okay? My name is Doug. I'm a pastor from Oklahoma. I don't know. My sermons and illustrations, they're just not really connecting these days. So I tried everything. Books, prayer, books on prayer, fasting. Nothing's really working. We grew up in church. We've just seen over time pastors just kind of become outdated. We wanted to create a program to help pastors kind of become more relevant. Help extend their reach. Just, you know, build their platform a little. Throw a little juju on their beat. Doug, how you doing, sir? I'm okay. What can we do for you? Well, things have been kind of rough for me the past few months. Yeah, church not going well, huh? No, no. Attendance is flat. Tithing's low. I'm not really connecting with my congregation. Well, Doug, bootcut khakis. That's not helping anything. Did you guys do a mannequin challenge at your church? Running man challenge. Pokemon Go series. Crying Jordan jokes. Also, we knew you were coming in. We took a look at some of your sermon series. You had one recently called uh, The Parables of Jesus. Oh, I'm bored. <laughs> Already, we just optioned a sermon series called Screenshotted if Jesus had a Snapchat. We did. It helped literally no one, but he got so many followers from it. You ever heard of Netflix and chill? Netflix and God's will. What about Walking Dead? The Walking Bread. <laughs> Boom. Uh, I don't know, Finding Dory. Finding Glory? You got it, Doug. You're on it. So you just take mainstream titles and you make them Christian. Is that even legal? Hey, little phrase we like to say around here, trust the process. You know what's back now these days? A uh, little series, you might have heard of it, Gilmore Girls. We already wrote a book called Fulfillmore Girls. Yeah, what do you think about that? I don't understand why you would imitate a culture that we're supposed to be against. Let's hop on your social media. Let's, Let's take a look at that. There's a lot of things we can improve there. Doug, look, you posted an Instagram at a Kroger, okay? Oh, bad news, Doug. You don't shop at Kroger anymore, okay? Whole Foods and Trader Joe's is where you're gonna live. Outdoor farmer's markets photos do so well for your new brand. Doug, we gotta hook you up with a personal trainer. Are you a member of a gym? It's real simple, okay? What we start with is the non-denominational multivitamin. That's just gonna give you a little bit more pep in your step, a little bit more energy on Sunday mornings. If you wanna go a step up from there, we have the Grow Shell Gummy. What that's going to do for you is give a little more tone in the shoulders, make those sweaters fit a little tighter. Now, if you want to go all the way, 
Furtick food. I don't know, guys. I just want to preach. And you will, but first, hair and makeup. Doug, you're wearing a polo shirt tucked into your khakis. Are you speaking at a golf pro shop? Tiger Woods, you not? I'm going to untuck it for you. We're going to start there. Okay. First of all, the length of the shirt is a problem, okay? Here's what we're going to do. You see this line right here? That's a swag pastor state, but we call it the straight and narrow. did it. I, I just rededicated my life. You look amazing. <gasps> Let's head over to your church. We got work to do. We'll swag out that sanctuary, add a wood pallet background. We'll have you planting satellite campuses in no time. So I'm pretty sure Trevor has those shoes, by the way. So he's not in this service, but just kind of scope it out when you see him afterwards. He's teaching the confirmation class. So, and then the last logical step here that we can unpack another day is that for spiritual renewal, God's people must respond to his word. Because we understand that it's not simply about learning, but it's about, you know, putting into action that which God has called us to do. And this is why. One of my favorite authors is Howard Hendricks, and he has a, he has a book called Living by the Book, and it's about Bible study. We use it a lot in the Bible study class that I teach in the winter. And he has a chart where he talks about what truly happens when you study the Word. Because for many of us, we start, okay, Word of God in the center, that's what we're talking about right now. And then the second circle is the life of the transformed person. But we have to be careful because you don't stop there. The goal of the Christian life is not to simply be the best version of yourself. That's actually just a polished, nuanced type of self-centeredness, right? To say, I'm going to grab the Bible for all I can so I can be the best person that I am. Instead, the Word of God is transforming us and changing us. We gather together in a community of transformed people so that we can go out and transform the communities that we are placed in. And so that's the type of calling that we have to be people who were in His Word, so I'm going to invite the band to come up right now. And while they do, I want to tell you about a very practical way that you can do this. As a church, we have a, a reading plan that we're doing together. It's called the New City Catechism. How many of you are doing the New City Catechism? Okay, Awesome. New City Catechism is a, a weekly Bible study that many people in the church are going through together. It has daily readings that we send out to you via email. So if you're an email person, I want you to take out your connection card later in the service and just put a note on there. Why don't you write you know, the words reading plan? Or you can even put NCC, New City Catechism. We'll add you to the email group. The reason I tell you this is part two, which is centered mostly on the person of Jesus Christ, why he came, his life, how he's both God and man. Part two starts tomorrow. Literally tomorrow. That's why we have the new bookmarks on the seat today when you came in, because the old bookmark ran out today. The new one starts tomorrow. I would love it if you would jump into the New City Catechism. It's topical, which means if you missed last week, you can jump in this week, because you won't be missing anything. Each week is a slightly different topic. And it's a daily reminder to be reading his word and to then be responding to the call that he's placed on our life, because it's, it's our vision as a church our rendering for what this body should look like, that we will be people who are centered in his word, 
that we're strengthened in Christian community and then we're sent out on mission from him to be changing the world in all the ways that he's called us to. So I'd invite you to stand right now. What we're going to do is we're going to have some more time of worship here through singing, and then we're going to together receive the elements of Holy Communion and use this as a time to just deepen your worship for him.